Amen. All right, well, good morning, everybody. If you are standing, you can go ahead and grab a seat. Let me pray, and then we're going to jump into that text. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to uh, gather in some ways, uh, that we get to hear from your word, that we get to sing, that we get to praise you. Um, God, for all that you have done for us. We pray now as we look at this text, um, God, would you give us sharp minds, soft hearts, that we would know what you'd have for us, that we would, um, God, just be in a greater uh, awe of you, that we would love you in greater ways and worship you in greater ways. Uh, Would you speak to us now? Would your spirit come and would you move through your word right now? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well again, good morning everyone in our Providence family. We are glad that you have joined us again. Like Jared said, this is uh, maybe becoming a little bit more normal now. Uh, If you are brand new, you've never been to Providence, this is your first time. Uh, Again, I just want to say welcome. Uh, My name is Andrew. I serve here at the church as one of our pastors. Uh, And uh, my family and I, just like you, probably are still adjusting a little bit to our new normal with all the coronavirus stuff. Uh, But my wife, she's actually uh, uh, in her third trimester right now with our second kiddo, uh, which we're super excited about. But she's at that uh, stage in pregnancy where she really begins to understand kind of the harsh reality of a term I'm going to call suffering than glory. All right, so if you've never heard that before, it's this idea uh, that a lot of things in life, there's a period of hardship or suffering first that brings forth some sort of glory or some sort of good or joy. And I don't know that there's a better example in our world than pregnancy. And so my wife, I'm sure, is chiming in with all you moms saying yes and amen, right? So if you, if you haven't thought about it, think about how pregnancy works. You spend about a year uh, with your uh, body changing, your lifestyle changing, your hormones changing, you're in pain, you feel sick, you are just exhausted, and on top of all that, then you get to the point where you actually deliver a human, okay? And now, once you go through all of that, it's this mess of change and hurt and pain and exhaustion, but you get through all that, and what happens the moment that baby is born? It's a glorious moment. Right? Like it's a complete moment filled with joy. There's this process of suffering and pain that leads to, or, or even think about our current cultural moment right now with all of the coronavirus stuff. You know, we've been practicing this idea of social distancing, and I think the heart behind that is the same thing. It's this idea of suffering, then glory. Right? If we were to suffer, you know, quote unquote, now for a little bit and we distance ourselves and we isolate ourselves, that's going to quicker bring forth a season of glory. Right? If we don't change our patterns, uh, it could be tragic and there could be more people getting sick and more deaths. But if we suffer, then we can experience glory. Or maybe even consider uh, how God has created the human body to work. So just think about this. If you are a mature uh, man or woman, you probably had to go through an incredibly awkward season that we call puberty, right? And puberty is this time uh, that it's just filled with your body changing and hormones going crazy and pimples and insecurities. But if you get through that season of life, you actually come out on the other side as a more physically and emotionally matured and developed adult. You go through a season of suffering that brings glory. I think this is a, a reality in our life. It's a biblical truth. In Providence, I think this is a reality that we have to embrace. 
I think one of the reasons why we might struggle with hardships or, or when suffering does come in our life is that we've never actually embraced the reality of suffering and then glory. And I don't think this morning is a, a little life lesson for you, just to, kind of a small thing to help you get through this week. I actually think that suffering than glory is a part of the big story of God. You know, we've been moving toward Easter in this series called Anticipating Easter, and we've been mapping out the, the overarching story of God, where we've looked at Old Testament themes and how they point to and how they tell this big, broad story. And today, as we take our final step toward Easter weekend, we're going to look at the reality of suffering than glory. And my hope is that first, we're going to see how that reality fits into this story of God. We're going to see why that was necessary. But then at the end, I want to ask the question, how does that reality actually uh, impact or affect us? How does the, the idea of suffering than glory impact the story of God? And then how does it affect our story? How does it play out in our church and in our lives? So if you've got a Bible, get it out, get it on your lap, open it up, and I want you to turn to Isaiah 52. We're going to be in a handful of different verses, so I really want you to see this this morning. Isaiah 52. If you are new to your Bible, um, nobody's around, nobody's judging you, you go straight to that table of contents, you find Isaiah, you flip there, it's about halfway through the Old Testament. Uh, But as you're flipping there, I want you to remember uh, last week, uh, we were looking at uh, how in the story of God, we've addressed that there's a problem that we have, and Jared talked about that God's answer to that problem, how he's going to fix that problem, is he is going to set a king uh, over a kingdom that's going to last forever. And that is a glorious truth. But today, we're going to say, yes, but suffering and then glory. We're going to see the suffering and why that has to happen first before we get to see this glorious king. So, if you got your Bible, Isaiah 52 We're going to start in verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So the last ten chapters or so in Isaiah has been prophesying about this one that they call the servant, God's servant. And the servant is going to bring deliverance and salvation for God's people. In verse 13, it says that God's servant is going to act wisely, and he's going to be high, lifted up, And exalted. In other words, God is saying there is going to be a glory to this servant. However, verse 14 transitions and says that this servant, his appearance was was marred. It was like beaten and changed. People were astonished, and not in like a good way where people are in awe and amazed amazed at him. It's like this kind of grotesque kind of astonishment at his appearance. So we see this glorious servant who's going to be exalted is first going to be lowly and beaten. And then in verse 15 it says that through this servant, all the nations are going to see and understand God. 
So I think the question that arises from these verses as we stop at verse uh, 15 is, how can this possibly be? You know, how can such great worldwide glory come from such deep humiliation and suffering? How could deep suffering lead to great glory? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Uh, like I want you to think about it. maybe maybe some of you you're kind of in a season where you're asking the question how can good or glory come from this suffering uh, maybe if you're not a Christian and you've just kind of tuned in to watch this service uh, I would imagine that maybe you've struggled with the problem of suffering and evil in the world maybe you've asked questions like if God is real then why are things so bad here. Why are my circumstances so hard if there's a supposed good God out there? Or maybe you're a Christian, and maybe you know Romans 8.28, that God works all things for good for those who love Him. And you know that, yet you're looking at your circumstances and thinking, how in the world can God bring good from this? How can this deep pain actually bring about some sort of glory? That's the question at the end of Isaiah 52. Is it possible to turn pain and humiliation into glory? Well, Isaiah 53 picks this up, and the author is going to tell us more about this servant that he's talking about. Look at just the first couple verses. We'll take these just a few verses at a time. 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of a dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So quickly here, Isaiah is speaking about this servant, but he says two kind of unique or seemingly paradoxical things. So in verse 1, he says that this servant that's going to be revealed is the arm of the Lord. Uh, now that may sound kind of strange, uh, a strange phrase, but that phrase has actually happened twice in the last few chapters of Isaiah, and both times that phrase means that this is an extension of God himself acting on behalf of his people. So if you start to put that together, you see that the servant is going to be God himself, Yahweh, the Lord. But then look at verse 2, it says that this servant, he's going to grow up like any other human being. Uh, Nothing super special, nothing extraordinary. He's no prodigy, just a boy who grows into a man. So if you start to put these pieces together, we have this suffering and then glory, and we're looking at this servant who is this God-man. Now look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This glorious God-man servant will come, but I said he's, he's not going to be enthroned immediately. He's not going to experience glory immediately. The people that he's going to come for are not going to love him, but it says they're actually going to reject him. This servant's going to be a man of grief. He's going to be despised and dishonored by the very people he came for. Just think about this for a moment. Knowing that, 
this servant still came. Uh, knowing that he was going to endure suffering, he still came. Knowing that he was going to be rejected, he still came. Knowing that he was going to have to submit himself to suffering, he still came. Why? Let's read 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him smitten, or stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Providence, I don't know if there are more beautifully loving words in all the Bible. Isaiah 53 says this servant of God, the God-man himself, the one who is going to be enthroned for all time, did not come to seize power and glory immediately. He did not come to find the easy way out. This servant didn't come to find his best life now, path to joy and comfort. The king came to suffer. You see, there, there's, a, there's a problem with mankind. Uh, the great problem is, we talked about this last week in Jared's text, that, that the problem runs a whole lot deeper than we often want to recognize or focus on. You know, I think for many of us, we see the problems in our life as either circumstantial, out there, or very shallow. Meaning, we think, my great problem is this virus is making me go crazy. Or my great problem is that my spouse is making it very hard for me to love them. Or my great problem is my chaotic kids and their schedule, which is making our lives nuts. Or my great problem is that my boss really has it out for me. Or my great problem is that it is impossible for me to thrive in these circumstances that have now come into my life. I think we continually live out of the assumption that our problems, our deepest problems, are, are just kind of out there, or they're just these relational issues. And so then we think our solution to the problem is just if we would get some different circumstances, or if we could just live a little bit better, all of life would be easier. Over the course of uh, the last maybe 100, 150 years specifically, Uh, There's been some lines of thinking from scholars and pastors in some churches um, that that are professing Christians, and they kind of diagnose the problem and give a solution that goes something like this. Uh, They would say that the problem is that God and you uh, are on two different pages, to which I agree. Uh, The problem is that God has given you a direction for life, and you've just kind of gone a a different direction, to which I agree. Uh, The problem, they would say, is that God has made a path, and this path uh, is a path of life. And you are kind of walking on this path, and it doesn't bring as much life to you. And so uh, the problem is just you're, you're not experiencing as much life, to which, to some extent, I agree. The solution they would say, uh, is that the Bible puts forth this person, Jesus. 
And Jesus is solely an example of what it means to walk in the presence of God, uh, to live the way that God wants you to, to be on the right path. And so they argue that the solution to your problem is that if you just look at Jesus and you try to live like Jesus and you act like Jesus and you try to just follow the things that Jesus said, if you do all those things, you will get yourself on the right path and you will now find life and freedom in God, to which I could not disagree more. Uh, Jesus is not solely an example that God has put forth for you to look at. And you are not innocently wandering in the dark, having just stumbled your way into a path. It's not as if you are in the dark and you're on this path and you've kind of innocently wandered over here. And Jesus is like this lantern that's kind of saying, hey, this is the actual right path. So just get yourself over here and then you'll be fine. That's their argument. And I would say that's not what the Bible teaches. Isaiah 53 clearly states, that's not your reality And that's not the reality of Jesus. The reality is that you do not have a problem of innocently being lost in the dark. You have a problem of sinning against a holy God. Uh, You have willfully walked in the opposite direction of God. You're not innocent. You're actually guilty. And our problem isn't that we just happen to be wandering from God. Our problem is that our sin and rebellion has invoked the righteous wrath of God against us because of that rebellion. And Jesus did not come to simply be your example of a better life and point you in the right direction. You don't need to be pointed in the right direction. Uh, The Bible says you are dead in your sin and you need someone to make you alive. Uh, Like you have a guilty record and you need someone to make you innocent. You are covered in your sin and wrongdoings and you need somebody to forgive you. And what Isaiah 53 says is so much more of a beautiful, loving, powerful picture than any theology that tells you Jesus was a mere example. Uh, Don't ever buy into the idea that Jesus is just an example for you. That's diminishing the power of and the glory of God. Don't diminish what he's done. If you start to believe that Jesus is just my example and I just have to follow him, I need you to kill that thought immediately. That reality is nothing compared to what is true about our Savior. Because what our Savior has done is he has bore our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him as nothing and he was pierced for our transgressions. Uh, He was crushed on our behalf. Our chastisement or our punishment that we deserved was given to him and he gave us peace. He was wounded so that we could be healed. We are the ones who have willfully gone astray. We've done whatever we've wanted to do and God has pursued us and called us and put our punishment on Jesus. Don't ever diminish what God has done in Jesus. The God-man, the King of glory, first submitted himself to being the suffering servant on the cross. Jesus, Isaiah 53, goes on to say, he'll be, he's the righteous one who took the cross of the unrighteous. He's the holy one who was treated as unholy. The punishment, death, and suffering that we earned, Jesus took. And the freedom, life, and glory that he earned, 
he gave to us. Now, I'm not just uh, making this up about Jesus, that he suffered first and then glory for, for on our behalf. He actually says this himself. So if you would uh, remember in Mark chapter uh, 8, it's this kind of famous scene where Jesus takes his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter famously says, well, you're the Christ. He's saying, you're the one we're waiting for. You're the king. You're the one this whole story is about. You're the Messiah. You're going to come in glory and you are going to lead a kingdom. That's who you are. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. But do you remember what his next words are? He says, what I'm going to do first is I'm going to suffer I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to die. Now Peter quickly cries out, no way, like quit talking like that, Jesus. You're not going to suffer. You're the king. You don't need to suffer. You have power. Why would you suffer? You see, Peter is a lot like us sometimes, I think. Uh, Peter doesn't want to believe in suffering then glory. Peter wants glory now. Right? Like He wants good times right now. Uh, and I think we do this all the time. We want to lose weight, but we don't want to uh, eat healthy. You know, we want big muscles. We don't want 5 a.m. workouts. Uh, we want a thriving marriage, but we don't want to put in time and investment. We want to be COVID-free, but we don't want to do the social distancing. But this is the reality of our world, that usually there's suffering than glory. If we look at Peter, or you look at Israel as a whole, they wanted a human king to lift momentary suffering and give them earthly life. God wanted a divine king to lift ultimate suffering and give eternal life. Did you catch the difference there? That, that Israel, they wanted uh, a human king, somebody they could put on their human throne that would lift some of the momentary suffering that they're feeling and they would have a better earthly life. Doesn't that sound familiar to how we often want to live, but see, God has something so much better. He wants a divine king to lift our ultimate problem, to take care of our ultimate suffering, and he wants to give us eternal life. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is so beautifully loving and gracious that he submitted himself to momentary suffering on the cross so that he could lavishly give out eternal glory to us. I just want to say Isaiah 53 is very clear and if you are listening to this and, and maybe you've operated under the idea that Jesus was just a good figure, he was a good example, or maybe you've never really wrestled with this, I want to ask you, would you consider trusting in Jesus today? To, to recognize that you have a main problem, an ultimate problem that is sin, but Isaiah 53 says Jesus can take that from you. That he will bear that for you and he will give you life and freedom. He is your sacrifice and he is your substitute if you trust in him today. That's the purpose of suffering and then glory and the story of God. This is the climax of God's story that his glorious king would come and suffer on our behalf. That's how we enter the kingdom. That's how we enter eternal life. But then for for all of us who've trusted in this suffering servant, if we've placed our faith in this suffering servant, if we understand that, that the only way we have life and enter into this kingdom is through that in God's story, I do want to ask the question, what does it mean to embrace a similar suffering than glory lifestyle for us? Like if that's key to God's story, what does that look like for us to embrace it? What does that mean for our story? As a church, what does it mean to actually embrace the reality of suffering than glory? 
Well, to understand that, I want you to go to another place in the Bible. Flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, in this, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this, he's going to show how if we embrace a suffering than glory, a death to life mentality, um, he's going to show us how that actually works itself out in the church. Uh, and as we read this, he, he's speaking of his ministry and how this played out, but I think we can apply this into our church and in our lives today. So 2 Corinthians 4, let's start in verse 7. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Do you see the argument that he's starting to make here? You know, Paul's saying there's going to be hardship. There's going to be suffering. Physically, you're going to face calamities. It will feel like physically you are afflicted in every way. But if you have trusted in Jesus, you are a person that cannot be crushed. Even though we may be struck down, he says you cannot be destroyed. He's saying suffering, hardships, calamities, they will come. And if you've trusted in Jesus, you will not be defeated. So before we move on, let me just pause and make a quick aside. Uh, I'm sure some of you, I think probably listening to this right now, you may feel defeated this morning. Uh, You may feel down and out. You may feel crushed and destroyed. And I want you to hear from this passage that through Jesus, if you've trusted in him, you may get beaten down. You may go through suffering, but you are not defeated. You're not. Paul says, he's a man who says, I know suffering. He was beaten, he had persecution, he was afflicted, and he says, you can endure. Jesus himself was a man who experienced persecution and suffering and hardships, and he promises that if you are united to him, you will not be defeated. Hear the voice of Jesus this morning saying, you may suffer, but you are not defeated. Now let's finish this this section to see what this then looks like for people that are not defeated, a people that cannot be crushed. How do we live? Verse 10 says, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Okay, if that's the first time you're reading that, it may sound a little confusing. So let me try to explain. Uh, His argument uh, is that he's saying for anybody who has trusted in Jesus, we have then embraced a death-to-life reality. Uh, Meaning, in Jesus, we see what it means to embrace death to self in order that we could give life to to others. That's exactly what we just looked at in Isaiah 53. He's the servant who faced death himself in order that he could give life to people like you and me. Now, for Christians, uh, verse 10 uh, says this unique thing. It says that we are carrying the death of Jesus in our bodies. Uh, I think that means that, that our bodies, our flesh, this life, this has been given to Jesus. 
Other places in the Bible say things like our old self, who we once were, that, that identity that we once had, that's, that's dead. That's crucified in Christ. My flesh is gone. That died with him. I am a new creation. The life that I now live, I live by faith. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. There's this beautiful transition that that old self, that life is gone and Christ has given me new life, a new identity. And so in, in many ways to be a Christian means you've experienced a death to self and you have now experienced life through Jesus. We've given up the control that that old life was. That's been crucified in Christ and you are now living in Christ. Well, for what purpose? Look at the end of verse 10. He continues, "So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies." So one more time, think, death to life, suffering than glory. If we die to ourselves, we die to the, this old body, this old life, then we can at the same time carry the life of Jesus through us. This means that we become a people that are not consumed about ourselves. We are not consumed with our own life. We are a people that have already died to Christ. We, we've died. That has been put on the cross and we now have new life. You see the difference here, that we're not chasing life for ourselves. We actually get to be a people who have died to ourselves and now live for others. We carry the death of Christ, and we also get to carry the life of Christ. I think verse 12 sums it up. It says, death is at work in us and life in you. He's saying a people that embrace death are a people that can actually give life. Maybe think about this phrase this way. We are a people uh, that have a way of life that's death to self, life to others. Uh, even say that right now. Say, death to self, life to others. So I want to end by just practically saying, what does a death to self, life to others lifestyle look like for us today? If that's the reality of if we've trusted in Jesus, our sins have been forgiven, we are now living this death to self, life to others type of life like Jesus what does that look like? Let me give you just a few examples. Um, again, let's just talk about our current moment, right? We're in the midst of this COVID-19 stuff. Um, what does it look like to have a death to, li- or death to self, life to others mentality? Well, I think it's a little bit different depending on, on who you are. So I don't think there's a blanket statement on this one. But, but let's say you are a person who in, in one side, you're a medical professional, or you work in a nursing home, or you have a lot of family uh, and friends that really need a lot of assistance. Uh, for you, living death to self, life to others, might look like putting your own needs and health on the back burner and actually running in to engage. Many of you that are medical professionals, you're doing this every time you have a shift. You're running into the hospital and you are living out this death to self, life to others type of lifestyle. Uh, but now let me say on the flip side of that, Let's say your position or just where you are at in life, um, you don't have a lot of contact with people in, in need. You don't have a lot of contact with the elderly or, or maybe people at high risk or you don't work at a hospital. Uh, for you, what does it look like to be death to self, life to others? Well, for you, it probably looks like social distancing. I mean, the most loving thing you can do for others is embrace a little bit of things that you don't like, which is staying in your home or distancing yourself from other people. But that may be the very thing that gives health and life to other people. You see, both things are are different ways to live, but it's the same mentality. Death to self, life to others. As a church, what would it look like 
to give up our own comfort to give comfort to others. Like, just think about it. Our, our need for comfort, our need uh, to have things just the way we like things, that's dead. That, that self died with Christ on the cross. You now get to be a person that dies to that so that you can live to give comfort to others, to give security to others. Uh, what would it look like as a church to give up financial well-being for ourselves in order to provide for others? Like our need to feel secure, to have wealth and riches, all of that for our own gain, that died with Christ. That's dead. Our, our self is dead there. And so we can build finances, we can build wealth, we can accrue money, but what it look like not to have that for ourselves, but to actually do that so we can provide for others. I think that's a death to self, life to others mentality. Or what would it look like? to give up some of your future plans that maybe you've clung to so tightly in order to get this message of salvation to people who've never heard. Uh, like that need to have the big house and lots of cars and kids and being right next to family and the dream that you've had since you were five years old of a perfect life. What if all of that, you say, man, that may be good, but that is the need for that is dead. I've died to myself, and what if God calls many people around the world so that, that we don't need just our comfortable life, but we can actually give eternal life to others? That's a death to self, life to others mentality. See, in the story of God, it, the pinnacle is the man Jesus who lived out a death to self, life to others life. He gave life to us, and church, we can now, in this moment, actually live a lifestyle that is death to self, life to others, to look at how if we embrace the suffering servant, we can actually be a people of life to others. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for sending your son. Uh, we thank you that in your grace and glory, uh, you did not count our sins against us, but you would put those on Jesus. Uh, I pray right now for anybody who's wrestling with this, that they um, would choose to follow you. Uh, that they would let, Jesus, you pay for their sins and that they, by your utter grace, would experience life and forgiveness. That their sins would be gone and that they would be made white as snow. Jesus, we praise you for your cross. We praise you um, that you died for us, um, God, but we praise you uh, that it didn't end in that suffering, it didn't end on the cross, but that you would rise again to glory, that you are the king that we follow, that you are the king that gives life, that we are now a people of the king that can die to ourselves in order to give life to others. Would you help speak that into us as a church? Would we be a church that radically cares more about others than ourselves? Um, that truly lives this out, to, to love and give life and light everywhere we go. Would you help us with this? Would you speak to us now? God, would you hear us as we sing?